Uh, We're going to take a break this week from the book of Genesis, and I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we've got some ushers here. They're going to make their way to the back, and we would love to put a copy of God's Word into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, please just take this home with you. This would um, be a gift to you from us. We would be so happy to provide a copy of God's Word for you. Well, uh, a fun phrase that we like to say in our house is, tomorrow we'll say tomorrow. And we say this at different times throughout the year, you know, when we are anticipating something uh, exciting or fun on a specific uh, day that is coming up, but we're not quite at the eve yet of that day. We're like at the eve of the eve of the day, and so we look at each other and we'll remind each other, tomorrow we'll say tomorrow. And today is one of those days. Uh, Today is a day when we look ahead not to Monday, but to Tuesday as a special day on the calendar. The eve of the eve today is of the 506th anniversary of the day that Martin Luther would, as uh, historians have so eloquently stated, ignite the flames that would become the firestorm of the Protestant Reformation. Some of you thought I was talking about a different tomorrow, we'll say tomorrow. On October 31st, 1517, Luther, in fierce opposition to the abuses of the sale of indulgences by certain leaders of the Roman Catholic Church, nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. His introduction to his 95 theses was thus. Out of love for the truth and the desire to bring it to light, the following propositions will be discussed at Wittenberg under the presidency of the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts and of Sacred Theology, and duly appointed lecturer on these subjects at that place. He requests that those who are unable to be present and debate orally with us may do so by letter. An intriguing introduction to what proved to be one of the most important documents, not only in the history of the church, but in the history of the world. Gripping introductions have a way of garnering our attention. A captivating opening to a letter or a book provokes the interest and the eagerness of the reader, making us want to go on and see if what comes after lives up to what has initially been set before us. And what I want to look at with you today is even more intriguing of an introduction to an even more important document than Luther's 95 Theses. I want to look with you at the introduction to the gospel according to Luke. And perhaps for you too, maybe, I know for me, the opening sentence, that's what these first four verses are, one sentence, has always been a fascinating one. As far as I can remember, this has been the case since I began to read the scriptures. And what I didn't know until just this week is that many language scholars consider this one sentence here in Luke's gospel to be the most eloquent sentence in the entire Greek New Testament. It reads like kind of a beginning to a a grand treatise or, or an epic legal brief. This sentence packs in several layers of intrigue and truth and encouragement and application and conviction, all carrying the weight of utmost seriousness and importance. 
And what I find so stirring about this introduction to Luke's gospel, and what I pray that the Lord stirs in your heart through this message today as well, is that while this introduction proposes that we read the book of Luke to see what treasures flow out of this particular writer's pen, at the same time, this passage serves to teach us more broadly about the word of God in order to increase our affection for all of scripture. So let's read together the introduction to Luke's gospel. Verse one says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. From Luke's introduction to his gospel, I want to show you today three propositions about the Word of God, three propositions about the Word of God to increase your affection for the Word of God. In other words, I want to answer the question, why should you love your Bible? Why should you run to it? Why should this book be the greatest of your treasures? And first we answer this by stating this proposition, the written word of God strengthens the assuredness of the believer. It strengthens the assuredness of the believer. And what we're going to do is we're going to start at the end of this sentence and we're going to work our way back up to the beginning. We're going to start with the very clearly stated purpose for the writing of this book. Now, unique uh, among the Gospels, Luke addresses an individual to whom he is writing. His name is Theophilus. This means lover of God. And he receives the title most excellent, which uh, probably means he's a Roman official. These two words are only used uh, elsewhere in the book of Acts to talk about Roman governors. So he he probably has high status, a, a man of honor, presumably a man of great wealth and power. We don't really know anything else about him, but we know that he's been instructed to some degree about Jesus and Christianity. And the question has been raised as to whether or not he's a believer. I agree that he is a believer and that the certainty that Luke offers is for the deeper bolstering and assurance of his faith. See, Luke writes to him because he wants him to have unwavering confidence in where he has put his trust. And so he says, look, I wrote this down for you. I've examined everything with extreme carefulness, and here it is, so that you can read it, and so that your assuredness can be strengthened, and you can be certain about the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, for us, church, the Gospel of Luke and the other 65 books in the English Bible have been handed down to us for this same purpose. Luke knew that Theophilus was in need of the written word in order to bolster his faith. And so do you, and so do I. Let me offer to you a few reasons why. First, we're forgetful. We're forgetful. We we need a concrete, 
unchanging, outside of ourselves, source of sustenance that doesn't depend on our own ability to remember the truth that we've heard in times past. And I've said this before, but I need to say it again. Our memories aren't as good as we like to think that they are. Can you admit that? Today, our memories aren't as good as we like to think. And so with a written record in hand, Theophilus could come back again and again and again, and we too need to come back to the written word again and again and again. I'm convinced that by and large in our day and age, in our culture, even in our church, even in my own life, that we far too often tend to neglect coming back to the written word of God as we ought to. And it's not just because we need to see the gospel, but because we need to see how the gospel is supposed to impact our lives on a daily basis. And the biblical illustration for this is perfect, isn't it? Ready Ready for the biblical illustration for this? Here it is. I ate dinner last night. And I'm going to need to eat dinner again tonight. Right? Last night's dinner isn't enough for tonight. Psalm 1, right? If I don't replenish my intake of food and water, I suffer from malnourishment and I'm going to wither and die. And because we're forgetful, we need the written word in order to read it again and again and again to strengthen our faith. To see again on the pages of God's word why we can be certain about the things that we've heard about Jesus Christ. Also, we need this because we're impressionable. And I mean this impressionable here not in a helpful sense. Right? There's many competing voices in this world and we're susceptible to being shaken away from the things that we've heard. The biblical authors warn us about this kind of thing. Paul in Colossians 2 verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Make sure you don't get taken captive by the world's thinking. In Ephesians 4, 14, he says, Don't be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, every kind of teaching. The writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 9 says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. And so we ask ourselves, why these kinds of warnings to believers in Scripture? And it's because it happens. Right? It's because we're impressionable. It's because we can be influenced by the outside world. The enemy, he's deceptive, right? He's he's sneaky. We don't even realize that this is happening most of the time. And sometimes we we hold convictions, certain certain ways of thinking, and, and we believe certain things that are all opposed to the word of God because we've been influenced by the world and we need the course correction that comes through reading the book. But thank the Lord... We're also moldable. And this time I mean it it in a good sense. 
in a positive sense. We are moldable. God, in his sovereign wisdom, this is what he decided. He ordained a book, a collection of books, so that his people would read and through a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit be changed by what we're reading. This is his design to grow our confidence in the truth. It's been suggested that uh, for Martin Luther in the face of all the corruption and lies that the most dangerous thing that he ever did was not nailing those theses to the castle church door. But rather, it was through his translation work in getting the Bible into the hands of the people in their common language. He spent years and years translating the Bible and and working and refining his translation, improving upon it, because he knew that this is what God uses to bring about the greatest change in the hearts of his people. We need to remember that we are the clay And God is the potter, and the water that he uses to mold and shape us is the word of God. Why do we love the Bible? Because it presses conviction into our hearts and gives us confidence that what we have been taught is real and life-changing and hope-giving. This leads to the second proposition we get from this passage about the word of God that ought to bear fruit in ever-increasing affection for the word of God. Next, the written word of God stresses the trustworthiness of the writer. It stresses the trustworthiness of the writer. In other words, we, we love the Bible because the words on its pages are true. Surely the gospel of Luke is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. But notice that this is not the emphasis of his argument for the reliability of his account. In verse 3, he writes that for a great deal of time, he's been following all things closely. Or this could be translated, he has carefully investigated being a medical doctor. This Paul calls Luke the, the beloved physician. Luke knows how to do his homework. He, he knows how to fight for accuracy. He, he took precise notes. He knows how to listen. Look at verse 2. He, he talked to those who were there, who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, as they delivered the details of everything that happened. This word delivered here could also be translated handed down. And it's a technical term for authoritative oral tradition that is passed down in early Christianity. What he's talking about is the testimony of the apostles and others who saw and heard and touched and ate with and who were themselves healed and transformed and who saw the risen Lord. He takes every effort to give his readers an authentic narrative of the happenings of Jesus, and it's all verifiable. Names, dates, locations, all the specifics are there. It could be checked on. F.F. Bruce, a scholar in the, the, um, the Bible and, and the New Testament in particular, he said, a writer who thus relates his story to the wider context of world history is courting trouble if he's not careful. 
He affords his critical readers so many opportunities for testing his accuracy. And listen, friends, it has never been proven to be false. Another commentator says it like this, Luke does not base the credibility of his gospel in religious inspiration, but in the presentation of a history that can withstand historical scrutiny. Everything in this book aligns with reality. It's no fairy tale. I love what C.S. Lewis said in this regard. We're going to put that up on the screen. You can follow along. C.S. Lewis said, All I am in private life is a literary critic and historian. That is my job. He was an Oxford professor, and long before he was a Christian, he was a literary uh, genius. And I am prepared to say on that basis, if anyone thinks the Gospels are either legend or novels, then that person is simply showing his incompetence as a literary critic. I've read a great many novels, and I know a fair amount about the legends that grew up among early people, and I know perfectly well the Gospels are not that kind of stuff. He goes on to say, if someone was going to make this up, they would not have written it like this. I think uh, what stands uh, uh, at the the height of reasoning for that would be, if I was Luke, and I was uh, writing something that I wanted to make up, if, if I was lying about all of this, I don't think I would have started off by saying I wasn't even there. Right? I, I would have said, I saw it all. This is how it all went. But he doesn't do that. Listen, all this to say, the Christian faith is not just a leap in the dark. If, if you're here and, and you don't know if you can believe the Bible, I would just say, test it. Test it out. It can withstand your scrutiny. It can hold up under your questions and your research. It's all 100% based in reality. And if you are here and you're a believer, be reminded of the trustworthiness of the biblical authors today and let this spur you on in your affection for the word of God. I did say that we would come back to the issue of human authorship and divine authorship and this is such an important topic, one that we haven't looked at in a little while and so I want to do so with the hopes of flanning, uh, fanning the flame of our affection for the word of God. And so we can do this, again, by asking a few questions, uh, the first of which is this. Are these Luke's words, or are they God's word? Are these Luke's words, or God's word? And the answer to this question is yes. All right, this is a question of inspiration. Who wrote the Bible? And Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, said, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is breathed out by God. This is one of the texts that we go to when we're talking about the inspiration of the Bible. Uh, The other most common text is from Peter. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says, 
He's talking about the reliability, the certainty of the word of God. And he says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So how do we make sense of this, that that this is um, God's inspired word, while at the same time it is the words of Luke, the man, the the historian, the doctor. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology has a really helpful paragraph that I want to share with you as well. He says, in cases where the ordinary human personality and writing style of the author were prominently involved, as seems the case with the major part of Scripture, and all that means is there are some smaller parts of Scripture that were directly dictated by God, write these words down. But most of the Bible is not that. Right? Most of the Scriptures, it's the human personality and writing style of the author And all that we are able to say is that God's providential oversight and direction of the life of each author was such that their personalities, their backgrounds and training, their abilities to evaluate events in the world around them, their access to historical data, their judgment with regard to the accuracy of information, and their individual circumstances when they wrote, listen, were all exactly what God wanted them to be. So that when they actually came to the point of putting pen to paper, the words were fully their own words, but also fully the words that God wanted them to write, words that God would also claim as his own. When we read the, the written word, we're reading not just the words of man, but also the word of God. And there's mystery in this, I know. Um, we don't... We don't understand exactly how the Spirit of God carries this out, but we know that this is how Scripture works. This leads to a second question, though. How do we know that this is true of Luke's account written to Theophilus? Like, we know that this is true about Scripture in general. How do we know that this is true about Luke's account here written to Theophilus? And this is a question of canonicity. Which writings belong in the Bible? Earliest church records, uh, even from the second century, that's the 100s, so not, uh, not too long after the, the time of the New Testament. Both in Christian history and non-Christian history, attribute this third gospel and the book of Acts as a two-volume account written by Luke, the companion of the Apostle Paul. In the early days of the church, the Old Testament had long since already been recognized, but it took some time for the entirety of the New Testament to be recognized as inspired writing. Uh, Early on, the four Gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, along with Paul's letters and the book of Revelation, uh, were seen as carrying divine authority. This, This happened quite early on. And we can understand that as these letters were being written and distributed and copied and passed about and, and um, at different times in different places, the, the collection of the New Testament didn't just come together overnight. It, it took some time. In 367 AD, 
we have the first historical record from Athanasius of Alexandria listing without qualification for the first time the 27 books that we have in our New Testament. How this came to be was through some generally accepted principles. And so I just want to share those with you. If you've not considered this before, or maybe if you have, this would be a good reminder. These principles for recognizing, recognizing and that's important, an important word, it's, it's recognizing, not determining or choosing, but recognizing which books were inspired by God. We can sum it, sum it up with uh, three principles, and they have to work together, these three principles. The first one is this. The author had to be a known prophet or apostle or one of their immediate companions. So authorship needed to be there, but not only authorship, but secondly, the writing could not contradict any other scripture, right? That wouldn't make sense for God's word to contradict itself in any way. And so the writing could not contradict any other part or disagree with any other part of scripture. And then thirdly, and this one is actually most important, the writing was widely accepted as the word of God by the consensus of the church, One writer said this, the the canon basically imposed itself upon the church. In other words, it was obvious to the church at large, there was obvious agreement that certain letters and certain books were divinely authoritative and inspired. This makes sense, right? When we know that Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep know my voice, my sheep hear my voice. Again, F.F. Bruce has some helpful words to say in this regard. He said, one thing must be emphatically stated. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and generally apostolic authority Direct or indirect, meaning apostle or close associate with an apostle. This is the case with Luke, by the way. Right, Luke was a close associate of Apostle Paul. We know that from books like uh, Colossians or Philemon, where Paul is uh, in his first imprisonment in Rome, and he, he records Luke as one of those who were with him there. And then again in 2 Timothy, in uh, Paul's second imprisonment in Rome, he says, Luke alone is with me. The first, getting back to the quote, yes, on the screen there, the first ecclesiastical councils to classify the canonical books were both held in North Africa at Hippo Regis in 393 and at Carthage in 397, but what these councils did was not to impose something new upon the Christian communities, but to codify what was already the general practice of those communities. So these books were widely accepted as the ones that were inspired by God. One more question in this regard begs to be answered. How do we know that what we hold in our hands today are the actual inspired words Luke wrote back then? And this is a question of preservation. There's two ways to answer it. One is logically, um, if this is God's word, He's going to make sure it doesn't get corrupted, right? 
the grass withers, flowers fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. He's, he's going to make sure it is preserved, so that's logically, but even uh, evidentially consider that the manuscript evidence offers such a high degree of, of physical evidence in ancient copies of the books and fragments of the books that we have near certainty about what the authors originally wrote. And listen, where questions remain about particular text, which is very rare, these verses are footnoted, and we understand where there is questions, and no core Christian belief is affected. I want to put a graphic up on this screen for you. Maybe you've seen something like this before. This just takes a look at some of the ancient manuscripts. You can see in the first column there the the list of different works and the years that they were written. And then in the second column, you can see the year where the earliest manuscript of that same work going across appeared. It's pretty remarkable to just see how some of these ancient writings have been preserved over the years. In the third column, you can see how long was the gap, just a little bit of math, between the time that the earliest manuscript of a certain work appeared and the time that that work was written. You can, you can just follow down there, 750 years, 250 years, 150 years, and so on. And then in the final column, we have the total number of known manuscripts today of these ancient works. And um, even, I was just looking again at, at this this morning, even, even to have 100, 200, 400, 1,900 copies of an ancient work in, in manuscript form is remarkable to me, but look at the number of the New Testament manuscripts that have been discovered over the years. 5,856 copies of different parts of the New Testament dating back at the earliest to just 30 years after the writing. It's, it's incredible the evidence that we have for the written word of God. And the confidence that we can have that what we, the, the Greek New Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, that we translate our English Bibles into are what the original authors first wrote down so many years ago. And listen, all of this to say, all of this to say, may the Lord increase our confidence, and not only our confidence, but even more so our affection, our love for the trustworthy word that has been delivered, handed down to us. We love the Bible because the words on its pages, the words of the human authors and the words of the Spirit of God are completely true. The third proposition about the Word of God to increase your affection for the Word of God this afternoon is this. Number three, it spotlights the praiseworthiness of the Redeemer. It shines the light at the central figure, the Lord Jesus Christ. We love the Bible because it shows us the person whom we love, the Savior of the world, right? That is why we love the Word of God. The written Word of God points us 
to the living incarnate word of God. This is seen in verse 1. Look again at verse 1 with me. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been what? Accomplished. There it is. Accomplished among us. This is what Luke is focusing on in this book. The things that have been accomplished, or we could translate this word fulfilled. He's not merely saying, let me tell you about these crazy things that have happened in the last 30 or, or whenever he wrote, you know, those, those years, those three years, those, that week of, of Jesus' life. No, he's, he's writing from a deeply rich theological conviction and conclusion. I'm writing to elaborate on the redemptive acts of God that have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Promises have been kept. Victory has been won. Jesus came, he said, he's paid the penalty for sin and all who put their faith in him can be reconciled to God and have hope of eternal life in his everlasting kingdom. It's all been accomplished for us. Luke says the only one capable of reversing the curse has come. The unparalleled, matchless Savior of the world. He's done what only he could do. He's kept his word. He's accomplished redemption. Just like the other biblical writers, Luke centers on the one thing, the one person that matters for life. Up until this point in history, everything has been waiting for him. I have to share this with you. I was reading through the Gospel of Luke, and I got to chapter 2. You can just flip over to uh, chapter 2 and uh, verse 25. Jesus had been born in Bethlehem, and then uh, his parents brought him to Jerusalem because they needed to offer a sacrifice to the Lord according to the Word of God. And in verse 25, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation. He's waiting for the comfort, the the deliverance, the salvation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So this man, imagine that, he, he knew that he wasn't going to die until he saw the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And verse 27 says, he came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And I remember lying there, I was reading that and I I was just kind of reminiscing over what we've been learning in these last months in the book of Genesis. And I I, I did this, I physically picked up my Bible and uh, I just flipped back 
to the beginning of Matthew, and I looked at just from, from this angle right here, and I, and I just looked at how many pages there are in the scriptures and how many years this represents. And how many people were waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise to send the one who would reverse the curse. And Simeon says, he's here. He's here. I'm holding him in my very hands. He's come to fulfill salvation and redemption for his people. This is what Luke writes about. He says he's come to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. He's come to give the blind their sight. The lame will walk, lepers will be cleansed, the deaf will hear, the dead will be raised up, the poor will have good news preached to them. And yet he was numbered with the transgressors. The Old Testament said it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem and so they sent him up the hill with the cross and they cast lots to divide his garments as the Psalms had said and the mockers, they shouted out, he saved others. Let him save himself as the prophets foretold would happen and the curtain of the temple was torn in two and Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And on the first day of the week at early dawn, the women went to the tomb. And they found the stone rolled away and, and it was empty inside and the angels appeared and they said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you? While he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? Fulfillment. Fulfillment. Accomplishment. Accomplishment. In Luke chapter 24. You can turn there if you want, or we're going to put it up on the screen. I want to show you how Luke, you know, we've been looking at how he. He begins this gospel. Let's look at how he ends the gospel. Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. This is after he had appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And now he is um, in the room. He appeared in the room to his disciples. And it says that he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be, what? Fulfilled. The same root word as in chapter 1. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem Verse 48, you are witnesses 
of these things. Luke says, I talked to them. I heard their testimony, most excellent Theophilus. And I'm writing it down for you so that you would be certain of what he's done. And that you and everyone in all the world who reads this book would see that he has fulfilled salvation, redemption for his people and would praise his awesome name.